listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 11, Ohio vs. Debates. And today we're going to be looking at the history of presidential and a couple vice presidential debates, counting down the top five debates in U.S. history, including a couple of which took place here in Ohio, all looking forward to the first presidential debate in two days between Joe Biden and President Trump that will be taking place in Cleveland, Ohio. It will be the third presidential and or vice presidential debate to take place in Cleveland. We talked about, you know, myself as a political junkie loving the conventions when we did that episode last month, but political debates is where it's at. Presidential debates, vice presidential debates, I rarely miss one. The volatility of these debates where you just don't know how it's going to go down. It's like a sporting event that way. When Trump took on Clinton, well, the first time we saw Palin up against Joe Biden, I mean, those were very, very uh, highly anticipated and I think these debates, although there probably won't be an audience in Cleveland, uh, will also be very, uh, very, very interesting. And they can have huge impacts on the race. And th- that'll be one of the criteria for the top five that we pick is its impact on the race, including one in Cleveland that many believe decided a presidential election. We'll be joined today by Alan Schroeder, a professor of journalism at Northeastern University, former television producer. Uh, and the author of the excellent book, Presidential Debates, 50 Years of High-Risk TV, uh, from Columbia University Press. And Alan and a number of other guests will join us to talk and break down the top five moments in one honorable mention debate that took place here in Ohio. A real quick ask for you guys, just a reminder, it would be great if you could stop what you're doing and rate and review the show. Uh, There's so many uh, reviews that we've gotten, we appreciate all of them, but the more we get, the higher up we move the rankings on iTunes. We always said we're going to read a couple. We got one just last week from Ohio V the World fan. Maybe change that that username when you do one just so people don't think I'm writing these reviews. It says, podcast very interesting, moves fast, captures your attention and interest. During the whole episode, I learned a lot and recommend it to people. Or from you know our friend D.N. Hughes from earlier this year. Thanks so much for the great history that you're teaching us. I'm a sixth-generation Ohio-born, and your show makes me prouder to live in this wonderful state of Ohio. Thank you so much. You can do a review. You can do a rating. Hopefully, you do both, but it takes like two seconds, and it would really be uh, great for the show, so thank you so much for considering that. Today, we're going to talk about presidential debates, like we said, a couple of vice presidential debates. In Cleveland, on September 29th, we will see Donald Trump debate Joe Biden, the first of three debates that got moved to Cleveland. Uh, due to some COVID concerns uh, at the University of Notre Dame. But we're really looking forward to watching these debates as we've watched every debate since we were a kid. And Alan will talk about that high-risk TV from his subtitle of his book, Presidential Debates. Uh, There's a link in the show notes to buy that book. He was so gracious to join us. I'm sure we'll see his talking head on the cable news networks as we get closer to, uh, to the rest of these debates. But we've got a lot to get to. Uh, to talk about the history of presidential debates in Ohio 
and the most famous debates, and we're going to play so many clips. Uh, this will be one of my favorite shows of the season. I can already tell it's been a blast to put it together. Turn on the lights, roll the cameras, and grab your spot behind the lectern. It's episode 11, Ohio vs. Debates. Our guest today, Alan Schroeder, uh, a media historian professor at Northeastern University and author of Presidential Debates. Alan's been in television uh, for years as a producer. He was a journalist uh, and now is a historian. But we talk with Alan first about just the live television element of debates and how important that can be, how it changes the dynamic of these canned stump speeches that we see and all the planned out nature of presidential candidacies. The debate cuts through all that. And it lets the American voter see their candidate under the bright lights of national live TV. We talked to Alan about live television and how that element is so important to our presidential debates. You can't plan for everything on live television. Live television is a really interesting phenomenon. I spent a lot of my career as a television producer working in live TV, and I had all kinds of weird things happen. I had somebody die on the air. I had uh, I had a riot breakouts uh, with the, with the studio audience one time on the air, and that's what really got me interested in debates in the first place was just the volatility of that situation, and you put that in the context of a political campaign and especially a presidential campaign where everything is choreographed and and really they don't want surprises the last thing a presidential candidate wants is a surprise so you put that candidate against his or her opponent in a setting that by nature is volatile and by nature can't be predicted and anything can happen now that's what makes these debates so interesting to us as viewers because you tune in not knowing whether you're going to watch you know the end of a political career or a star being born or god knows what um but so the if you think about how campaigns are run especially at the presidential level and the amount of control that the handlers exert over that process and then compare that with a political debate, a televised live debate, uh, it's really diametrically the opposite. And so candidates in the campaigns are pretty much terrified of the debates. You know, there are some candidates that go into it more confident, obviously, and there are rare candidates who enjoy the exercise. But on the whole, it's something that the participants, uh, both the debaters and also all the people around them, just go into with this huge amount of trepidation and can't wait to have behind them, uh, which of course is what makes it great for us, the voters. We, the voters, want to see our candidates in uncomfortable situations. We don't want them to stay on script all the time. And so this is one of the rare moments during a debate where you have that opportunity to, to see them in a kind of uncomfortable, unscripted, volatile, live situation. As far as the history of presidential debates in this country, the most famous debates were the Lincoln-Douglas debates. In 1858, a little-known one-term congressman, Abraham Lincoln, took on Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas. So they traveled around the state seven debates, actually, in 1858, as Lincoln and Douglas debated the role of slavery in antebellum American society. 
But that wasn't for the presidency. That was two years before they ran against each other for president. That was simply for the Illinois senatorship. Douglas ends up beating Lincoln in the election, although many thought that that springboarded Lincoln to his presidency two years later as he more than held his own with the famous senator. A little-known Ohio piece to presidential debate history goes back to 1908, the election between William Howard Taft and William Jennings Bryan. Taft from Cincinnati will be the subject of a show, uh, our season finale, actually, just before the election. But we talk to Jeffrey Rosen, the CEO of the National Constitution Center, the great museum in downtown Philadelphia, uh, right across from the Liberty Bell. Um, And Jeffrey wrote a great book about President Taft. And when we were talking uh, earlier this summer, he mentioned this idea of these record debates where groups of Bryan supporters and Taft supporters would get together across the country and the candidates were then, you were able to record their voices. And they would talk about the issues of the day on these records. They'd play a Bryan record. They'd play a Taft record on the same subject. These were really the first presidential debates that I'm able to find in U.S. history. There wouldn't be anything close to it until Kennedy and Nixon in 1960. We talked to Jeffrey Rosen about the first presidential debates between William Howard Taft and William Jennings Bryan. It's amazing, first of all, how patient audiences were then. You <laughs> listen to Taft, and he has a very friendly, sort of light baritone, reading extremely legalistic speeches on the tariff or on uh, public affairs. They're written like judicial opinions. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But people love to listen to them because it, the technology was so novel. So Taft and Bryan conducted what were called record duels, and people would gather in church halls or other public meeting places, and the Bryan supporters would put on a Bryan record about the need to reduce the tariff, and the Taft people would interrupt them with a record playing a a popular song, Merry Ha Ha, and then the Taft person would uh, play Taft's warning that uh, taking the tariffs off would destroy small competitors, and the Bryan people would interrupt with their comic song, Oh Glory, and everyone would sing along. And you, you can well imagine this being not only like a, you know, MSNBC or, or Fox News uh, debate of its time, but something that just represented the most thrilling vision of new technology. It brought the candidates uh, into the presence virtually of uh, people for the first time, and they were extremely effective. And in this sense, Taft's legalistic delivery, which of course would not work at all in the age of Twitter, uh, worked. One thing that makes presidential debates so important is just how many people watch them. Their ratings are through the roof. When we talk with Alan Schroeder about just how many people watch these debates, it's really the second most watched show any television year behind the Super Bowl. Presidential debates are some of the most highly watched uh, programs of any you know, sort of a accounting of, of audience ratings for, for, for TV. Uh, in 2016, the first debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump attracted an audience of 84 million 
people. Wow. That's just in the United States. You also had a lot of viewers around the world. Um, now, that makes uh, it and really pretty much with consistency as you look at ratings for debates that makes debates the second highest rated programs of the year after the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl does north of 100 million every year and uh, the presidential debates don't co come quite that close. I, I think there's another thing to think about when you think about ratings for presidential debates though and that is that uh, presidential debates live on. They have an afterlife. Yeah. It isn't that people are going to sit down and watch the entire debate again, that doesn't seem terribly likely unless maybe you missed it the first time. But it's the excerpts. It's the sound bites. It's the commentary. It's uh, the memes. It's what people post on social media. It's what reporters write about. Uh, that, that, that debates, you know, really um, are like dropping a pebble in a pond, that the ripples just go in every direction and continue for a long time. Uh, and what's interesting about this is that debates have been highly rated from the very beginning. When Kennedy and Nixon in 1960 did the first round of presidential debates in the U.S., those were the highest rated programs of the year. As you look through American history from 1960 beyond, uh, presidential debates consistently draw enormous audiences. And I also look at, I also study debates around the world, and it's a phenomenon that uh, exists outside the United States as well. In countries like France and Spain and Britain, uh, the audiences are gigantic in every context for, for debates. And it's, I think it has to do with that thing we were talking about before, the volatility, the unscripted nature of debates. People watch because they don't know what's going to happen. And frankly, there aren't that many things on TV that uh, fall into that category. You know, yeah. that's uh, why I think debates are often analogized to sporting events, because you have a competition, you don't know the outcome uh, initially, and it all hinges on what happens during the course of that uh, of that that period. And speaking of, of ratings, when we were talking, Alan mentioned, hey, don't forget a, a, another debate uh, piece of debate history that happened in the Buckeye State. At Quicken Loans Arena in Cleveland in 2015, President Trump took the stage. Then as, as a candidate uh, in the Republican primary debates, it was the first debate where Trump was on stage, I think with nine or seven, eight, whatever, of his opponents, Jeb Bush, John Kasich, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, um, a really, really highly rated, you know, we're talking about ratings. This is a primary debate that got, you know, just an enormous rating. Um but also just a crazy night. We talk with Alan Schroeder about that first Trump debate, and we play a clip that kind of lets you know where politics were going in the next year in 2016. The first Republican debate of 2016 and it was an enormous field. They had to divide it into two groups, but it was the first time that Donald Trump was on a debate stage with his competitors. And it took place at the Quicken Loans Arena in Cleveland. And uh, the audience 
support that uh, was uh, around 24 million people, which for a, a primary debate is unheard of. I mean, we had one in the 2019 cycle with the Dems that, that got almost up to 20 million, but, uh, but it's very rare. You know, usually a primary debate will, will attract, you know, maybe 10 million would be a good number. So 24 million for that first Republican debate in 2016 uh, with uh, Megyn Kelly questioning Donald Trump. And, you know, it was a, it was a, just a free for all. It was a, it was a weird debate and yet in many ways predictive of the rest of that campaign cycle. And, uh, and it happened right there in Cleveland. One of the things people love about you is you speak your mind and you don't use a politician's filter. However, that is not without its downsides, in particular when it comes to women. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account Only has Rosie several... O'Donnell. No, it wasn't. Your Twitter account... Thank you. For the record, it was well beyond Rosie O'Donnell. Yes, I'm sure it was. Your Twitter account has several disparaging comments about women's looks. You once told a contestant on Celebrity Apprentice it would be a pretty picture to see her on her knees. Does that sound to you like the temperament of a man we should elect as president? And how will you answer the charge from Hillary Clinton, who is likely to be the Democratic nominee, that you are part of the war on women? I think the big problem this country has is being politically correct. I've been, I've been challenged by so many people, and I don't frankly have time for total political correctness. And to be honest with you, this country doesn't have time either. This country is in big trouble. We don't win anymore. We lose to China. We lose to Mexico, both in trade and at the border. We lose to everybody. And frankly, what I say, and oftentimes it's fun, it's kidding, we have a good time. What I say is what I say. And honestly, Megan, if you don't like it, I'm sorry. I've been very nice to you, although I could probably maybe not be based on the way you have treated me, but I wouldn't do that. But you know what? said we're counting down the top five moments in presidential and slash vice presidential debate history in moment number five we start with the 1988 presidential debate between governor mike dukakis of massachusetts and vice president george hw bush the race is close and bush who's really um, was the favorite coming in has lost ground to dukakis there's issues uh saying that he's you know a wimp the wimp factor uh, he's a moderate, and that he may have been wrapped up, and I believe was, in the Iran-Contra affair. But as they go to this debate, Trump acts like that was a very unfair question by Megyn Kelly. He was, you know, simply had to respond to his own words and tweets in the past. Maybe the most unfair and infamous question ever asked in a debate was asked by CNN's Bernard Shaw, who starts this debate with Michael Dukakis in, I think, the most inappropriate and absurd way with his question about the death penalty. We talked with Alan Schroeder about that memorable moment, our number five moment 
in U.S. presidential debate history? That question of Bernard Shaw to Michael Dukakis in the first 1988 debate is probably the most famous question ever asked in a presidential debate. He uh, begins the program right out of the gate. Bernard Shaw, the CNN reporter who's the moderator of the debate, says to Michael Dukakis, Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? And Michael Dukakis goes on to give this rather sterile response about, no, he believed in, uh, he did not believe in the in capital punishment, and so that would not alter his uh, his response, blah, blah, blah. Kitty Dukakis herself was sitting right in the audience, but there was a prohibition on taking reaction shots of anyone in the audience. So you never saw her. Uh, which logically, uh, you know, the visual sort of grammar, you would want to see that shot and you would want to include her reaction after all they're talking about her, but you didn't. The candidates, the first question goes to Governor Dukakis. You have two minutes to respond. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. Uh, I don't see any evidence that it's a deterrent, and I think there are better and more effective ways to deal with violent crime. There's a number of different ways Dukakis could have and or should have attacked this question. He should have called the question out for being ridiculous, then stated his position of being against the death penalty. But as Alan talks about, this is still something that Dukakis stands by, his response even though the issue of criminal justice and crime in this country was a huge issue in the 88 debate. It was made a huge huge issue by Lee Atwater. Atwater was a senior advisor to Vice President Bush, responsible for the Willie Horton attack ads. There's a great documentary called Boogeyman on Lee Atwater. Go check that out. Now deceased, but Lee Atwater was really the architect of the modern campaign. You think of Karl Rove and you think of David Axelrod for President Obama. Lee Atwater was an attack dog. Uh, but we talk with Alan uh, just about the fallout from Dukakis's response and how Vice President Bush would go on to win by more than 300 electoral votes. Bernard Shaw was criticized an awful lot for that question. In fact, the other panelists, there were three women who were asking questions with him, and all of them begged him before the debate not to ask that question. And he insisted on doing it anyway because he thought it would reveal something about Dukakis, which it did. But um, but it was uh, considered by many to be an unfair question. Dukakis responded in such a way that didn't seem sort of the way a husband would respond uh, to a question about his wife's theoretical rape and murder. He he just seemed too detached from it. And no he emotion. He was not feeling well. Yeah, no emotion whatsoever. He was not feeling that well that night. He had the flu, and so he was already a little out of it. And then the way that came across on television, and especially right out of the gate at the beginning of the debate there, it, it, it just sort of made people think, well, this guy, you know, doesn't, doesn't have any emotion. He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, he's not sort of a human being like regular people. And that was a knock against him even before the debate started. So that reinforced something about Dukakis that already existed, that was already a negative, when, you know, he ought to have turned it around and uh, and, and, and sort of uh, seized the opportunity. 
Um, I interviewed Michael Dukakis about 20 years after that, and what he told me was that he still considered that the right response. He didn't see anything wrong with his response. Uh, but it shows you, you know, that even practice politicians who are quite accustomed to being on television can be caught by surprise, caught off guard, and under the glare of a presidential debate and its tens of millions of viewers, something can just get magnified in a way that almost takes on a life of its own. We moved to number four on our list, but we stay in 1988. Again, I mentioned these are the first debates that I remember watching as a kid. I was into politics and history even then. Um, and this was the vice presidential debate of 1988 between Senator Lloyd Benson of Texas and Senator Dan Quayle from Indiana. Quayle was a very interesting choice by Vice President Bush to be his running mate. The idea is that Bush was older and moderate, Quayle younger and much more conservative. Quayle had run into issues about his aptitude as a politician, his understanding of the issues. He was treated pretty harshly by the media, uh, and a lot of similarities to the vice presidential candidacy of Sarah Palin. Some 20 years later in 2008, we talked about Sarah Palin with our friend Mike Albritton on a previous episode of Ohio vs. the Campaign. We asked Alan Schroeder just who was Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle was a junior senator from uh, Indiana, a young man, uh, not a lot of experience. And George H.W. Bush chose him as his running mate in 1988, to the great surprise of pretty much everyone. Um, I don't know exactly what they were thinking, but I think the calculation was to add some 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 youth and yeah. maybe even a little bit of glamour. Quail's a good-looking guy to the to the ticket, but Quail was clearly not ready for prime time. And as a candidate, he made a lot of errors and came off as uh, not the sharpest pencil in the box. <laughs> uh, so when he went into his vice presidential debate with uh, with Lloyd Benson, he was almost Almost regarded as kind of a Sarah Palin figure, sort of a, a an intellectual lightweight who might be kind of entertaining in the way that he was unable to 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 go against his competitor. And uh, so I think you know there were very low expectations for him. And then he, you know, didn't exactly exceed those low expectations. <laughs> he actually sort of flew under the expectations as it turned out. Yeah. So, so Dan Quayle in the annals of uh, presidential and vice presidential debates is, uh, is, is, is kind of a, a warning to everyone. This is what can happen to you. The reason this makes it to number four on our list is what happens when Lloyd Benson calls out Dan Quayle in this debate. It might be the most famous moment in, in presidential debate history, again, and it's a vice presidential moment. It's also, as Alan says, a tip of the cap to the importance of oppo research, knowing your opponent, following what they're saying on the campaign trail, and then trying to use it against them. It's probably the best way to be prepared, because when you're under the hot lights, you kind of go back to what you know. You go back to the parts of that stump speech. And Lloyd Benson was ready when he crushed him with the line, you're no Jack Kennedy. We'll listen to Alan set that clip up for us, and you'll hear the destruction of Dan Quayle. Yeah, when we think about debate preparation, it really goes beyond just preparing the candidate for what happens on the stage in, in a rehearsal sense. It's also being prepared for what your opponent is likely to say. So in 1988, the uh, Dukakis-Benson campaign had dispatched people to attend all of 
George H.W. Bush's events and also Dan Quayle's events to sort of take notes and figure out, well, what is it that they, that they always say? What is it that they're likely to say in a debate? And so Quayle had, in the course of his, uh, his campaigning, compared himself to John F. Kennedy on the question of age and experience and that kind of thing. He had used that line several times, and the uh, the opposition researchers were in the audience taking notes. So in prepping Lloyd Benson for his debate against Dan Quayle, they told him, you know, it's quite likely that he's going to use this line about being the, the same age as, uh, as, as John F. Kennedy was. And so uh, Benson was ready. And when you watch that, it's a great moment because because Benson sort of um, registers what has happened. You kind of see his mind working mm-hmm. because, you know, he knows he's got him right where he wants him. And then the delivery of the line, and Benson is, is you know, masterful in this because he, he says it in a way it sounds like, oh, I just hate to have to say this. I regret <laughs> so much having to undermine my opponent here, but, and then goes on to deliver the line that I, I always jokingly say will be chiseled on Dan Quayle's tombstone, you're no Jack Kennedy. It is not just age, it's accomplishments, it's experience. I have far more experience than many others that sought the office of vice president of this country. I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. I will be prepared to deal with the people in the Bush administration if that unfortunate event would ever occur. Senator Benson. Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. In a situation like that, in a situation like that, you're only taking time is to call in the joint. Your own candidate. That was really uncalled for, Senator. (laughs) You're the one that was making the comparison, Senator, and I'm one who knew him well. And frankly, I think you're so far apart in the objectives you choose for your country that I did not think the comparison was well taken. So it's a great lesson in the value of opposition research, in the value of understanding your opponent and what he or she is likely to say in a debate, and being ready for that. And Benson was more than ready, and it was a devastating moment that we all remember all these years later. talk about vice presidential debates, we have an honorable mention uh, addition to this show, and that's the 2004 vice presidential debate between John Edwards and Vice President Dick Cheney. That happened here in Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio, at Case Western Reserve University. Definitely a debate I remember watching. I was in law school in Cleveland at the time, living in Cleveland, and we had people over to, to watch the debate. It took place a mile from my house at the time. And our guest today, great author, attorney, uh, an historian from Cleveland, Jim Robinault, was there too. 
He had hosted a symposium before about Ohio's presidents. Jim remembers that debate, and we asked him just who was Senator John Edwards from North Carolina, uh, who was in that debate, the running mate to John Kerry on the Democratic side. Cheney and Edwards were scheduled to debate here in Cleveland um, at Case Western Reserve. Case had been picked for the, the site for the, the vice presidential debate. John Edwards was a former plaintiff's lawyer, who I think got rich, and then became a senator. He was a guy who, who really caught people's attention because for the first time in generations, he started talking about poverty. He started talking about the two Americas. Um, and he was really good at it. I mean, he really had a gift. His star was very much on the rise because he was like a latter-day Bobby Kennedy and talking about poor people for the first time in a long time. We welcome back to the show Bruce Carlson, host of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Go to MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com. Uh, he recently released a great old episode he had uh, about presidential debates as well. Uh, and Bruce will join us later in the show to talk about another Ohio debate. We asked Bruce just about the importance of negotiations. All of these debates are discussed, a number of debates, the format, but way more than that. And if you listen to Bruce's podcast, he'll talk about the issue of a belt buckle in the 1976 debate. Um, all this stuff is planned out ahead of time. It's negotiated, and each side's trying to get the edge on the other. Uh, but in this debate, Carlson... Uh, mentions that you know a negotiator from the Bush team really made a big move when he got both candidates to agree to sit at Case Western Reserve University in 2004. Well, before the debate even starts in the negotiations, the Republicans win because they force John Edwards, who's this excellent trial lawyer, great speaker, to sit down and both of them sitting down. And that really equalizes Cheney in a way. That's Cheney's best way of performing. That's where he operates in the boardroom. So, um, so that's right off the bat. You're constraining uh, Edwards. There are two major issues in the 2004 election. The first we'll talk about here was foreign policy, namely the war on terror and the war in Iraq. By the fall of 2004, the Mission Accomplished banner had been torn down. The United States had entered into a quagmire in Iraq, an insurgency, and they had discovered that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Saddam Hussein's arsenal. John Edwards would take Vice President Cheney to task over this, and Cheney would defend uh, their positions and deflect. We talked to Jim Robinault just about the state of the war at that time, how the country had begun to turn against the war in Iraq. And also, you'll hear clips from the debate moderated by PBS's Gwen Eiffel. You know, Bush faced um, tremendous challenge right out of the box with 9-11. And his going into Afghanistan was not particularly controversial, but you know, the going into Iraq was extremely controversial. And I've always pointed actually to Warren Harding to say, when we went to war in World War I, he said, I don't think it's our business to go to war to change the regimes um, in a country. That's not, we shouldn't be doing that. That's not our goal. We should take care of ourselves. We should be the model. Um, we should help people if they're, if they're attacked, but we shouldn't go in and do regime change. And that's what Iraq was. It was all about, you know, getting rid of this guy, claiming there's weapons of mass destruction. And, you know, about this time, everybody was kind of figuring out there were no weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. And Bush was having a hard time admitting it. it, it they shifted from, we got to get him out because of 
weapons of mass destruction. Dude, this guy's just a dictator and we got to get rid of him. You know, we're better off. And we're going to create this oasis of democracy in the middle of the Middle East. And Warren Harding could have spoken to them uh, directly from 1917 and said, first of all, it's not your business. Secondly, it's not going to work. And the problem was the Bush administration had no plan for victory. You know, once they won that war, uh, you know, that mission accomplished stuff. They had no idea about how to really get this country back on its feet, and it became a failed state that was in a civil war. So it was a, it was a complete disaster. Uh, we've made significant progress in Iraq. We've stood up a new government that's been in power now only 90 days. The notion of additional troops is talked about frequently, but the point of success in Iraq will be reached when we have turned governance over to the Iraqi people. They've been able to establish a democratic government. They're well on their way to doing that. The weapons inspectors needed to have time to do their job. Had they had time to do their job, they would have discovered what we now know, that in fact Saddam Hussein had no weapons, that in fact Saddam Hussein has no connection with 9-11, that in fact Saddam Hussein has little or no connection with al-Qaeda. The senator's got his facts wrong. I have not suggested there's a connection between Iraq and 9-11. But there's clearly an established Iraqi track record with terror. And the point is that that's the place where you're most likely to see the terrorists come together with weapons of mass destruction, the deadly technologies that Saddam Hussein had developed and used over the years. Another domestic issue had risen in the 2004 debate, and it was really brought on by two things. One, the declaration uh, allowing same-sex marriage in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, that was... Uh, or Kerry's, Senator Kerry's home state. And also the in Ohio, it was known as Issue 1, a defense of marriage constitutional amendment that would make it, make it illegal for same-sex couples to get married, nor would the state of Ohio have to recognize same-sex marriages from other states. This is an issue that the Republicans put on the ballot to get their base out, to get their conservative base out to vote for a president, uh, George W. Bush, who had gone from the height of popularity following 9-11, to a president who was teetering. His popularity had plummeted, uh, and he was in a neck-and-neck -neck race with John Kerry for the presidency. Issue one in, in Ohio did turn out the vote. Was it what ended up getting George Bush over the top? I don't know, but a huge blunder is made by John Edwards. The Democrats, you know, this, not that long ago, 16 years ago, but the Democratic Party, their leaders still had not come out in support of same-sex marriage. In fact, they had been, people like John Kerry, John Edwards had pushed for civil unions. That might sound outdated at this point. Um, but even President Obama, when he's running in 08, still had not come out firmly for same-sex marriage. It was a contentious issue, and it was not nearly as decided as it is now in the public, in the public mind. Issue 1 in Ohio, the constitutional ban on same-sex marriage would pass. George Bush would win a narrow re-election campaign by winning Ohio by just 100,000 votes. But John Edwards makes the mistake of bringing up the fact that Dick Cheney has a gay daughter, and the way that he does it is not artful. There is almost no artful way to do what he tries to do. We talk with Bruce Carlson and our guest Jim Robinault just about how that backfired and blew up in John Edwards' face, and rightfully so. And I've met this guy, and I've actually done a, a panel with him. Um, Carl Rove is the evil genius behind a lot of this stuff. And what Karl Rove figured out was that um, if you're going to activate a base, you got to do it with 
issues that are culture war issues. And man, are we living in that environment today in every sense of the word. Yeah. It had started with Nixon, um, this whole idea of culture wars. But what they what Rove saw and decided to do at that point was that they were going to put on the ballot um, anti-gay issues um, so that people would come out to vote on the gay issues as opposed to the presidential contest. So it was a total diversion um, to get to activate people to come out. And at the time, there was a lot of, you know, anti-gay sentiment about, you know, uh, same-sex marriage. It's kind of hard to conceive today because the Supreme Court decision, that was one of those times when the Supreme Court decided something and public opinion really changed almost overnight about that in so many ways. I mean, there's still uh, a lot of people who don't agree with it, but um, but most people are comfortable with it and and understand it and so forth. But back at the time, it was a big issue. And so that was the way to divert from the disasters in foreign policy to really activate your people and get them out to vote. And that happened in Ohio. The, you know, the, they put those ballots on, they put anti-gate provisions on the Ohio ballot and that activated people to come out and vote. Let me say first that I think the vice president and his wife love their daughter. I think they love her very much. And, and you can't have anything but respect for the fact that they're willing to talk about the fact that they have a gay daughter, the fact that they embrace her. It's a wonderful thing. And there are millions of parents like that who love their children, who want their children to be happy. Mr. Vice President, you have 90 seconds. Well, Gwen, let me simply uh, thank the senator for the kind words he said about uh, my family and, and our daughter. I appreciate that very much. That's it. That's it. Well, you know, Cheney has a daughter who is openly gay. And so here he is in a party that is anti-gay. And Edwards thinks, well, this will be a good moment to kind of embarrass him, to say, you know, you don't see it um, nationally, but your own daughter um, is gay. And, you know, how do you feel about that kind of thing? And uh, it's just a boneheaded move. I mean, it, it is one of those things that you can imagine somebody cooked up in a, in a session when they were planning about this is a good way to go get in. And it's, it totally backfired because people were like, you know, that's a personal thing for Cheney. Don't attack him on that. He's, he's entitled to any policy he wants, but it's really a low blow to go after somebody um, for personal reasons. People don't like it when that's kind of dirty pool when you attack somebody's family. It seems long ago issue-wise, but it wasn't that long, it was just 2004, when that was an issue that could hurt Democrats. And Edwards brought it up and he tried to do it. It was one of these like a, a boomerang type attack where he is gonna say something kind of congratulating Cheney about how tolerant he is, all the while realizing that there's a large conservative vote that now are going to be looking this up. Is this true, Cheney? They counterattack pretty quickly that that's not um, appropriate and it Lynn Cheney comes out and attacks Edwards and so you have mama coming out um, not a great image and yeah VP debates can be important and it was 2004 was real close so it joins um, like 1976 where a VP debate really counted so you have a lot of debates where that that second debate is important and 2004 is one of them
go back to our list of, of most important moments in presidential debates, number three on the list, which is 1976, President Gerald Ford versus Jimmy Carter. It's an election that we discussed in great detail in our second ever episode back in 2017, Ohio versus the Electoral College. People don't realize just how close that election was. It was Ohio that put Carter over the top, along with a very slim margin in Hawaii. Uh, but there's other states that Carter won that many people point to one moment in a debate where Gerald Ford flubbed a line about Soviet domination of Eastern Europe. This is the height of the Cold War, and it's pretty clear that whether you're talking about Poland, Romania, all these countries in East Germany, obviously, uh, were under the Soviet sphere of influence. And Ford rejects that idea. We talk with, with Alan Schroeder, the author of Presidential Debates, 50 Years of High-Risk TV, about one of the ultimate screw-ups in presidential history, 1976, when it comes to the narrow loss of President Gerald Ford. I think what Ford meant to say there was that the Ford White House did not countenance the Soviet domination of Eastern Europe. But right. he was so definitive in saying there is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe that he just sounded clueless. You know, it just sounded like a, a kind of idiotic thing to say. And the, the reporter who asked that question kind of gave him a chance to dig out mm -hmm. during the debate. He didn't take it. And that became a big story right after the the debate. You know, within a couple of days, that's all anybody remembered about that debate was that Ford had said that Eastern Europe was not under Soviet domination. And rather than just come right out and clean up the mess, uh, they didn't do that. Ford was a stubborn man. He didn't think he had done anything wrong. And so it took them several days. And when they finally did get around to a clarification, it was this kind of weird thing where they they gathered the reporters they put uh ford in a remote location he wasn't like on camera standing in front of them uh, and then he went on a microphone and he made this announcement about uh that he had he had sort of misstated what he meant to say and that of course eastern europe is under soviet domination so it was a combination of um an off-the-cuff remark that uh was not well articulated followed by intransigence on the part of Ford, who didn't want to admit he made a mistake mm -hmm. and thought the whole, the whole ruckus about that was, was, was unfair and, and stupid and just an example of the reporters going after him. So, uh, so it was badly handled in, in every way um, and probably overblown to some extent uh, by, the, by the press. But, you know, it's a classic example of why you don't want to make a misstatement during a debate and why, if you do, you'd better clean it up right, right off the bat. There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration. Uh, I, I'm sorry, could I just follow? Did I understand you to say, sir, that the Russians are not using Eastern Europe as their own sphere of influence and occupying most of the countries there and, and, and making sure with their troops that it's, a, that it's a communist zone, whereas on our side of the line, the Italians and the French are still flirting with I don't believe, uh, Mr. Franco. The ultimate impact of that line uh, has been debated by historians for years. Uh, but one thing we want to point out is just how close that election was. And again, go back and listen to our episode, Elect Ohio versus the Electoral College, where we had Kyle Condick, the political analyst, 
from the University of Virginia Center for Politics, and we asked him, and as well as Alan, you know, is there any way to know, did that make the difference in Ford's narrow loss in 1976? Our bicentennial. Uh, and he, he basically just sort of flubbed what he wanted to say. But, uh, you know, this is a time where there's still pretty strong bonds with sort of ethnic communities, particularly, at, you know, like Northeast Ohio. Uh, but also, I think, you know, Wisconsin was important in that election, places like Milwaukee, uh, where, you, again, you have a lot of, you know, ethnic voters who are very cognizant of maybe even relatives back home in, you know, Poland or Czechoslovakia or wherever. Uh, and given the very close margins in those states, you wonder if hmm. uh, he upset a small number of, uh, you know, sort of, quote, you know, ethnic kinds of voters uh, with, with that, and, and that that might have also been the difference between winning and losing. I, mean- I think it's always really hard to, uh, to, to make a connection between what happens in a debate and the outcome of an election. Now, there may be an exception here and there to that, but here's the problem. You have um, the debates, you also have all the news coverage, you also have all the advertising, you have the candidates' rallies, you have what your friends and neighbors are saying about uh, the election. Uh, So there are so many influences on voter decision-making that I think it's really very difficult to extract something that happens in a debate and say that's the reason that candidate X won or lost. Now, exceptions, um, I think you could look at 1980 and say that Reagan's debate with uh, Carter that year was of great help to him in the final vote. For the number two debate on our list, we go back to Cleveland. We go to Cleveland's public auditorium, debate between Jimmy Carter, president, and former governor of California and former actor Ronald Reagan. took place in the public auditorium downtown, uh, a building that we talked about in our conventions episode last month, helped uh, a couple of conventions there in the 20th century. But coming into this debate, it was tight. Reagan, the upstart conservative that Carter and the Democrats tried to portray as an extreme warmonger. Reagan has a very small lead, I believe. Bruce Carlson, who talks about this one, uh, says it was like 47-44, but very tight. But we have an incumbent president who's losing. We asked Bruce just about what was going on with the Carter administration. Why was his approval rating so low? We had gas lines, the gas crisis, inflations through the roof, and really the Iran hostage situation dominating the headlines. Yeah, 1980s a lot closer than most people tell the story and what and a lot closer than the results would indicate both the presidential landslide that Reagan wins and also the congressional disaster for Democrats. That just makes it you know in hindsight look like oh it was always a blowout but it, if you were you know around during that um time I think it was uh, the polls were always very tight between uh, Reagan, uh, Carter, and, and you did have John Anderson and Independent running as well. It's so true that, that life and the presidency is about events, what happens. And Carter gets uh, dealt a, a bad hand, really. Um, first, you have a bad economy, uh, recession in 1980. You have a, a lot of the later two years of his presidency, inflation very high, particularly related to gas prices, the most uh, emotional for Americans uh, part of inflation. You know, it's not just like a few prices going up, it's gas prices and also gas supply 
so that uh, there are gas lines. You can only buy gas on certain days. Um, people are annoyed by all these inconveniences. And it also affects like things like heating of schools and, and um, you know, and Carter had the famous uh, sweater speech where, you know, to try to get people to conserve and things mm -hmm. like that. That was his approach to it. Um, at the same time, the hostages were taken in Tehran and this was seen as a blow to American prestige. The times were not there for him, I think. It was just a, uh, you know, just a series of, of, of bad events. Um, you know, had Camp David, but you're getting farther from that when you get to 1980. Then on top of it all, gets into a divisive battle and this is critical in his own party. Yeah. Senator Ted Kennedy barely wins in the in the nominee in the uh, convention. There's still kind of a lot of um, dislike among those two sides of the Democratic Party. So Carter comes out kind of limping, and then you go in with Reagan. They do believe that against Reagan versus uh, could have been Bush or Connolly or someone else that um, they have a better chance because Reagan's so extreme. And, you know, it actually, there's some thought that because this crisis going on and this American hostage is being held, that he might go to war. And that's the thing that Carter wants in this debate to play to his advantage. One of the most unique facts about this uh, debate that took place in Cleveland between Carter and Reagan was just how close it was to the election. It was Tuesday night, the week before America went to the polls. This is before early voting. This is really before absentee voting was was you know part of the mainstream. People voted on Tuesday, on election day. And so everyone is tuned in to see, is Reagan somebody we can actually vote for? Is Carter someone who's got a plan for a second term? But the real issue is, you know, Carter would not debate with this third candidate, John Anderson, a Republican who is now running as an independent was polling, Bruce said at times, up around 20%. Uh, that had fallen down to about 8% at the time of, of the debate. But Carter would not debate with three candidates. Reagan actually debated Anderson alone uh, in the weeks previous. But finally, it's a Carter and Reagan debate. We talked with Bruce about just why it was so close to the election and how big of an impact that would have on the result in 1980. It was such a divisive debate negotiation process that the League of Women Voters threatened to never do presidential debates again after it. That's how bad the, the whole uh, pre-debate situation was. But it all involves a third-party candidate named John Anderson, who ran as an independent candidate. He'd been a former Republican congressman from Illinois. And um, because he's in the race, Carter sees the threat. After all, his vice presidential candidate is a Kennedy supporter from uh, Wisconsin. So, you know, how, and a lot of people are saying, well, I'm not going to vote for Carter. I'm certainly not going to vote for Reagan. I'll vote for Anderson. If Carter can just kind of get him out of the contest, so to speak, that's his chance of winning. Um, and that's the, that's the kind of strategy of Jimmy Carter during this campaign. It really is a three-way strategy, but he does want to bury Anderson and knock that. You know, there's certain points at which Anderson's getting over 20% in some polls. That does decline by the time Reagan and Carter have their conventions. Um, so that has to do, the debate negotiations are that, uh, you know, Carter won't debate if 
Anderson is there? Why is he going to prop Anderson up? One of the myths about this famous 1980 debate uh, that we want to debunk here is the importance of the fact that Ronald Reagan's campaign got its hands on Jimmy Carter's briefing book. These giant books full of issues and leaders' names and talking points that every uh, candidate uses in their prep for these, these debates. You don't know the questions beforehand. In the briefing book, you have to get into it and know everything in there to be ready to perform on the night of a debate. We talked with Alan Schroeder about, really, was it that important that Reagan had Carter's briefing book? So there was also an instance in which a briefing book from the Carter campaign, a book that had been put together uh, to prepare uh, Carter for, for the debate, fell into the hands of the Reagan campaign. And so there was you know, always this sort of undercurrent of did Reagan get some help uh, ahead of time that, uh, mm-hmm. that, that really turned the debate for him. Here's the thing is even if you have the opponent's playbook or, or preparation book, it, it's not going to matter that much. These campaigns already know. They have a very sophisticated understanding of their opponent's positions, what their opponents are likely to say, what topics are likely to be raised in the debates. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, it might be of some slight benefit to, uh, to, to sort of see what your opponent has been studying before the debate. But chances are it's the same thing you've been studying as well. And so I don't see uh, I don't see that Reagan, you know, was able to, to to parlay any inside information into his debate win. It wouldn't hurt anything to to kind of know that, but I don't think he literally had the questions. Again, it's live TV. There's no way to to, to know that. Yeah. And uh, and I think his campaign had already pretty well anticipated Carter's strategy uh, in advance and when. get into the actual debate of 1980 in October, Carter did not perform well. Uh, In the first clip we'll play, this idea of nuclear war and how he tries to bring in his daughter Amy, his young daughter Amy, the conversation that they had uh, about what was the most important issue. But it's an example, and we'll talk to Bruce after we play the clip, uh, of just how Carter does not connect with the voters. How he just can't, he just doesn't have a good night, he's not putting you know, all his thoughts together probably the way that he wanted, and that is the problem of live debates. You never know exactly how the candidates can reform as much as they practice these days and as much as I'm sure Carter practiced in 1980. His line about his daughter Amy and the threat of nuclear war and this idea that Reagan was a warmonger simply doesn't land. This happened often with Carter. I think it happened in his acceptance speech in the 1980 convention where he had this great take it to him, take it to Reagan speech. And it kind of failed because Carter couldn't deliver that. And here's another example where he thought it would be a great idea in talking about nuclear war. Uh, and, and, and again, you know, this is Carter's focus going against Reagan. He's going to present him as a warmonger. And he, the president, is trying to keep the peace he brings up his discussion with his daughter, Amy, about what's the important issues. And she says she's worried about nuclear war. Another person, probably Reagan, might have delivered that line, maybe very well. 
people might have been crying in the aisles and we would have had a discussion many years later about how great a moment it was, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't delivered well. And I think in the context and given the rest of the debate performance where Reagan really shows that he's not this warmonger in this debate, it was an, you know, might have been an opportunity for him, didn't connect. At the Music Hall in Cleveland, Ohio, for the debate between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. This <clears throat> discussion, it would be better to put into perspective what we're talking about. I had a discussion with my daughter Amy the other day before I came here to ask her what the most important issue was. She said she thought nuclear weaponry the, and the control of nuclear arms. This is a formidable force. Some of these weapons have 10 megatons of explosion. If you put 50 tons of TNT in each one of railroad cars, you would have a carload of TNT, a trainload of TNT stretching across this nation. That's one major war explosion in a warhead. Perhaps the most famous line that comes out of this 1980 debate in Cleveland was Ronald Reagan's line to Jimmy Carter, there you go again, and he laughs. Carter's going on about Medicare, and Medicaid and how Reagan doesn't support these ideas and Social Security is in jeopardy if Reagan's elected. These are all positions that maybe Reagan had mentioned in the past, um, but he was a different candidate by 1980. Carter kept going back to the, the archives, as Bruce says. We talk with Bruce, who does a really pretty solid Reagan impersonation. Uh, if you ever listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, he did a 12-part series on Ronald Reagan, spread out over some time, but... You can go to his website, MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com and, and listen to his uh, 12 Reagans uh, kind of mini-series, his season on Ronald Reagan. But we asked Bruce about that line, there you go again. Throughout the campaign, the Carter strategy was to go on offense against his challenger because he realized that his situation was grim. And he, what he could do is, if he could make it about Reagan and not about him, he could he could possibly win a very narrow victory. One of the points of attack, and there's many of them because Reagan was a Goldwater conservative and come out strongly, not just not just a few statements against Medicare, but he had um, recorded um, records that were sent out to doctors and doctors' wives trouncing Medicare. And then of course that was 65. Now you're in 1980 and Medicare is an extremely popular uh, program among a growing group of um, uh, the World War II generation is receiving the, these benefits. And so Carter keeps bringing that up. On the other hand, though, there are critics who are saying, well, uh, President Carter, you're never talking about your own programs. Every, and you're also going into the archive every time you attack him on this stuff because he hasn't espoused these positions recently. And so when Carter attacks him, he says, well, there you go again. I forgot, I forgot you do a pretty good Reagan. <laughs> Reagan, I can do. These are the kind of elements of a national health insurance important to the American people. Governor Reagan, again, typically is against such a proposal. Governor, there you go again. When I opposed Medicare... You know, it's just a line that kind of deflates Carter's attack. And now Carter also can't use it again, but he has to because that's his strategy and that's what's in the briefing books. Yeah. And uh, there's no way out. I don't think there was a worse debate. You know, you could take Ford's 
second debate yeah. in the uh, in the 1976 for an incumbent president. You know, this is probably one of the worst debate performances, and it comes because of all that haggling over the timing. It comes just a week before election day. As if President Carter wasn't having a tough enough night up on Lake Erie, Reagan closes with a flourish. We talk with Bruce Carlson about Governor Reagan's finish about, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Rapid inflation, unemployment, uh, and it was Reagan who really used that line, uh, let's make America great again. He's the one who really first used that. Governor Reagan's finish and how it might have just finished off the presidency of Jimmy Carter. Next Tuesday is election day. Next Tuesday, all of you will go to the polls. You'll stand there in the polling place and make a decision. I think when you make that decision, it might be well if you would ask yourself, are you better off than you were four years ago? Is it easier for you to go and buy things in the stores than it was four years ago? Is there more or less unemployment in the country than there was four years ago? Is America as respected throughout the world as it was? Do you feel that our security is as safe, that we're as strong as we were four years ago? And if you answer all of those questions, yes, why then I think your choice is very obvious as to who you'll vote for. If you don't agree, if you don't think that this course that we've been on for the last four years is what you would like to see us follow for the next four, then I could suggest another choice that you have. This country doesn't have to be in the shape that it is in. All of this can be cured and all of it can be solved. 1980 is the only year in which there has been a single debate between the two major party candidates. Every other cycle, we've had a minimum of two, usually three, and in the case of Kennedy and Nixon, four debates. So a single debate, I think, is really dangerous for everyone involved because, you know, what if you have an off night? So we talk about Michael Dukakis having the flu during the first debate in 1988. It was not a good night for him. But if you uh, have a couple more debates after that, at least you have the chance to recover. Um, And a lot of debaters have had bad first debates. Barack Obama in 2012 against Mitt Romney is a classic example of that. But he had a couple of additional chances to go in and rectify the problem. Um, So there was the fact that it was a single debate and, and Carter did not have a good night and Reagan had a really good night. And so Carter never had the chance to go in and uh, undo the damage. Furthermore, 1980 is the latest in which uh, debate has ever been held uh, right. in relation to the voting. It was it was one week before election uh, day, and so there was no time for Carter to recover. Just in the course of a normal, uh, you know, sort of campaign events and press coverage and that kind of thing. He, he really just, you know, was, was, uh, was skunked in that debate and then, and then stuck with a calendar that didn't give him uh, any padding to come back and, uh, and, and restate his case. no doubt what would be number one on our list of most important, impactful, memorable presidential debates. It's the first debates. It's the debates of 1960, the razor-close election between Senator John F. Kennedy and Vice President Richard Nixon of California. 
It was these debates in 1960 that really set the standard for our four-year tradition of presidential and now vice presidential debates. Nixon and Kennedy got together and agreed to do four debates. And it was really the magic and importance of television. We talked with Alan Schroeder, you know, about the original debate, Nixon and Kennedy, and the importance of TV at the end of the 1950s. The Kennedy-Nixon debates were the first presidential debates. And of course, in 1960, that coincided with the explosion of television. By 1960, televisions were in the home of 90% of the American public. And that had just happened, you know, over the course of the previous uh, decade, that explosion in the in the number of homes using television. And so it was just kind of one of those historic moments where the technology coincided with the desires of the campaigns uh, and with the willingness of the television networks to come forward and, and sponsor the programs. And then there was an enormous uh, interest on the part of the audience. Uh, what, what was really interesting to me studying the 1960 debates, however, was that in advance, nobody really saw it coming. I mean, obviously, everybody knew there were going to be debates, and it was talked about. But, uh, for instance, the day of the first Kennedy-Nixon debate, the New York Times just ran like a little paragraph story saying, okay, there's going to be a debate tonight at uh, such and such a time. The Washington Post had a little bit more, but not very much. They just didn't get what a big deal it would be, and they didn't anticipate the enormous audience response, the tens of millions of people who uh, who tuned into those debates, and how influential the debates were going to be. Um, you know, there was no, if you watched TV that night, all the networks covered the Kennedy-Nixon debates, but it was regular programming. And then when the debate started, the debate started. There was no buildup. There was no analysis. When the debate went off the air, they just went back to their regular shows. There was no commentary. There was no post-debate uh, handicapping or any of that stuff. So those 60 debates really kind of caught, I think, the rest of the media by surprise. Um, and then, you know, there was a quick course correction. The, the audience uh, response, you know, led the press to realize we got to cover this differently. So there, so even going into the second of those four debates, uh, there's a, an explosion in the amount of coverage and the attention that the debates get. And, uh, and, and pretty much that's been the case ever since. Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates for the presidency. I should make it very clear that I do not be doing enough, that I am not satisfied as an American with the progress that we are making. This is a great country, but I think it could be a greater country. And this is a powerful country, but I think it could be a more powerful country. There is no question but that this nation cannot stand still because we are in a deadly competition, a competition not only with the men in the Kremlin, but the men in Peking. We're ahead in this competition, as Senator Kennedy, I think, is implied. But when you're in a race, the only way to stay ahead is to move ahead. You know, when he says 70 million people ended up tuning into these debates, that's a lot more than 70 million is nowadays. Uh, I think it's almost 40% of the country watched the first Nixon-Kennedy debate. Nixon did not have a great night, and there's a number of reasons that it went into it. 
whether he didn't understand how it would come off on television, uh, some stuff he was going through with his own health, even the choice of his outfit, his own his weight loss due to his health issues, all these you know combines to to really hurt Richard Nixon that night in front of the American people who sat down in front of their black and white TVs and watched the first presidential debate. Yeah, Nixon going into the first debate in 1960 had been ill, had been hospitalized with a knee infection. He'd been on the campaign trail. You know, his goal was to hit all 50 states, and he was determined to just work himself like a mule to, uh, to, to, to campaign. And the problem was it took a physical toll on him. And so by the time he appeared with John F. Kennedy in that first debate in Chicago in 1960, he was uh, just recently out of the hospital. He had lost a lot of weight. He was pale. Then on top of that, he didn't get good advice. Uh, or more fairly, I should say, he didn't listen to the advice that he was given. So things like wardrobe, his suit didn't fit him very well because he had lost all of this weight. His makeup, he was pale and, and sort of pallid to begin with, but he didn't want to wear makeup because he thought that Kennedy wasn't wearing makeup. So he wanted to be as macho as his, uh, as his opponent. Even something like the color choice of the clothes he was wearing, he yeah. chose a gray suit that blended into the background. And so they were literally repainting the set just, you know, minutes before the program went on the air to try to achieve a greater contrast between the clothing that Nixon was wearing and the backdrop that he was positioned against. So it just was kind of like a perfect storm of everything that could go wrong for Nixon in the first debate did go wrong. Now, in his news conference on August 24th, President Eisenhower was asked to give one example of a major idea of yours that he adopted. His reply was, and I'm quoting, if you give me a week, I might think of one. I don't remember. Now, that was a month ago, sir, and the president hasn't brought it up since. And I'm wondering, sir, if you can clarify which version is correct, the one put out by Republican campaign leaders or the one put out by President Eisenhower? Well, I would suggest, Mr. Van Oker, that uh, if you know the president, that was probably a facetious remark. I can only say this. Through the years, I have sat in the National Security Council. I have been in the cabinet. I have met with the legislative leaders. I have met with the president when he made the great decisions. The president has asked for my advice. I have given it. Sometimes my advice has been taken. Sometimes it is not. Richard Nixon was by far the more experienced politician in many people's eyes. He had been Eisenhower's vice president for eight years, and although the polls were close, it was really Nixon uh, that many expected to win. It's a great Madman episode about this election, that election night. Uh, you should go back and find that one. It's one of my favorites. They have a party at the office for the election. It's just, it's good stuff. Uh, great show, Mad Men. But these debates really legitimized John F. Kennedy. We talked with Alan Schroeder about how these presidential debates may have been the difference to get John F. Kennedy, senator from Massachusetts, elected our 35th president. Well, Kennedy and Nixon were more or less the same age, same generation. They had both uh, served as young men in World War II. But there was a big difference between them. Nixon had become vice president in 1952. So by 1960, he was very well known around the country. He had eight years as Eisenhower's vice president, and um, and was taken quite seriously as a as a politician. 
Contrast that with Kennedy, who was thought to be this sort of, uh, you know, the, the son of a wealthy guy who was a bit of a dilettante, that Kennedy uh, was, was not to be taken seriously. He was too good looking to, you know, take seriously. He was thought to be uh, untested. You know, he'd been in the Senate, but he hadn't really done anything at the executive level. And so going into the debate, Kennedy was by far the underdog and by far the the less presidential of the two. And so he had a lot of work to do. And the debates, I think, allowed him to make up for that and compensate for the the disparity in their in their reputations. Um, Kennedy was lucky in a lot of ways by having Nixon as, as his opponent and by Nixon in that first debate performing as poorly as he did. But uh, but but by all means, I think I think TV was the thing, and the debates were the thing that uh, legitimized Kennedy. People watched him, and they didn't see a callow, you know, sort of uh, playboy guy that didn't seem to know what he was talking about. They saw a very serious, thoughtful, intelligent man, and uh, and that really worked to his benefit. Senator, the vice president in his campaign has said that you are naive and at times immature. He has raised the question of leadership. On this issue, why do you think people should vote for you rather than the vice president? Well, the vice president and I came to the Congress together in 1946. We both served in the Labor Committee. I've been there now for 14 years, the same period of time that he has, so that our experience in uh, government is comparable. The question really is, which candidate and which party can meet the problems that the United States is going to face in the 60s? Mr. Nixon, would you like to comment on that statement? I have no comment. One thing I've always heard about the 1960 that first debate between Kennedy and Nixon that 70 million Americans tuned in for was this idea always that Nixon had won on the radio. People who hadn't watched it had thought Nixon had won the debate, and anyone who watched the debate thought that the tan, you know, great hair, good-looking John Kennedy had won the debate on TV. That was all surface. It was all because of television. We talk with Alan Schroeder here in closing about the, you know, is that true? Uh, when they say that you know television elected John Kennedy, his looks helped get him elected. I think there's probably some truth to this idea that Nixon won on the radio and Kennedy won on television, but it's based on very limited information. And uh, you know, you, you go back and sort of trace it to its source. It's a it's a particular study that wasn't very a large sample. Um, the other thing, frankly, is that uh, it's an interesting concept that the visuals overpower uh, the words, but, you know, it, it, it's almost a, you know, sort of an academic discussion at this point because, of course, the, the image matters and, of course, television is dominant. And so we can't go back to the days of just radio or the days when Lincoln and Douglas would stand in front of a crowd and, and speak for hours on end. You know, debates are television shows. And uh, so the image is of importance. And I think the thing that that allowed Kennedy to win those debates in 1960 was that he understood that. He went into it knowing that he was going to be performing on television. And Nixon was thinking more in terms of a college debate or, you know, sort of the, the, the importance of the positions and the words and the verbiage and not giving equal thought to the value of TV. 
So it's probably true that, that to radio listeners, Nixon came across better than Kennedy did. But in the final analysis, the 1960 debates proved once and for all that American politics would be conducted by TV and via the camera. And so, uh, you know, in the final analysis, it doesn't really matter too much who won on radio and who won on TV because uh, video killed the radio star, as uh, MTV used to say. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation today is Presidential Debates by our guest Alan Schroeder. Uh, this has been three editions of this. We'll put a link in the show notes as he's updated it over the years with, you know, 2016 uh, was, the, was the latest. Uh, but such a good book. You need to get your hands on it. There's a link in the show notes to buy it. Such a great book to read as you prepare to watch these three presidential debates and the vice presidential debates uh, between Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence. Really looking forward to these debates uh, start here in Ohio, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, just a couple couple days from now. I'm sure at some point in the future, Ohio the World will do a show about this debate, the first debate of 2020 between Donald Trump and Joe Biden in this really important uh, historic election. Thanks again to Alan for joining us. Uh, awesome guest. Nobody knows more. I'm sure we'll see his talking head on the cable news networks as we get closer to uh, to the rest of these debates. Just had so much fun talking to him. It's a really great book, I, and I'd love for you guys to check it out. Thanks also to our guests, of course, Jim Robinault, uh, who's just been awesome and joined us on a number of episodes, did a great job in our Harding episode from last month. Really one of my favorite ones that we've ever done. Uh, really enjoyed our episode on our 29th President Warren G. Harding. And also Bruce Carlson, who's been on back-to-back shows. Might have been on as many shows as any guests we've had. Uh, maybe Kyle Condict, who made an appearance here in this episode as well. But go check out My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. He's got a great debate episode that he re-released. Um, and it's a really good one. Talking about some of these same debates that we talked about today in even more detail. Uh, and Bruce Carlson's show, one of my favorite. He's been around for a long time. He's got way more fans than we do, and it's just so cool that he'll come on and give a, a young upstart show like ours, like Ohio View the World, uh, his time and attention, and, and has us, you know, has myself on his show a couple of times as well. Uh, very cool, and I appreciate that relationship. Guys, there's two episodes left in this Ohio versus the presidency season. We've had so much fun uh, and really. By far the most research we've done, and I hope you've enjoyed it. The guests have been outstanding from all over the country, and, and again, we were able to pull that off here. Um, our last, our next episode, our next episode will be about Ohio and the First Ladies. There have been so many First Ladies from the state of Ohio. We'll talk about that history. We'll go visit the National First Ladies Museum in Canton, Ohio, uh, as well as talk with comedian 
and historian Cormac O'Brien and play some other clips from interviews we've had about Ohio's presidents. And more importantly, we're going to focus on the ladies next episode. Uh, So really looking forward to that one. Again, go rate and review the show. It really helps us move up. And the best thing you can do is just share the show on your social media with your friends. Uh, Let them know about Ohio v. The World, and we'll keep spitting out uh, great content for you. So thanks. Enjoy the debates uh, and get involved politically and watch those debates. Get out there and vote in 2020, uh, whether by mail uh, or in person. It's going to be a very close election, I think, and and making sure that your voice is heard is every American's uh, duty. So thanks again. We'll see you next time for Ohio vs. First Ladies. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.